Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 7. We're going to continue our study in Mark chapter 7. So you can be, be finding your way there. If you saw the title in the bulletin, it is Jesus and Traditionalism. Jesus and Traditionalism. Now, because I, I come up with the title early on Thursday, I have kind of an, maybe in a, uh, a further, more complete title. So you can, Jesus and Traditionalism is good, but you, if you're taking notes and you haven't already written it, you could write Jesus and the Dangers of Traditionalism, because that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see the dangers of traditionalism. And, and what we'll see, Jesus is going to encounter a, a specific type of traditionalism of the Pharisees and the scribes in, in Mark chapter 7. And we're going to see that traditions can be bad, or, or we'll see that this, these specific traditions are bad, but they're not bad because they are traditions. Okay, we've we got to make that point clear. They're, they're bad because these traditions take precedence over the commands of God. And so it's as if the traditions and the commands of God go against one another, and the tradition takes precedence. And so they're dangerous only insofar as they replace or, or supplant the word or command of God. And so the point of the passage isn't that traditions or traditionalism are, or is bad. That's not the point. But they become bad. So, so traditions become evil when they run counter to God's purposes expressed in His commands. And traditions become dangerous when persons are blind to how they undermine God's commands. Or traditions become corrupt when people become more devoted to upholding them than to obeying God's direct commands. So do you see how there's the danger? They become evil, dangerous, corrupt when they contradict, undermine, and supplant God and His commands. And so that's the traditionalism that, that Jesus faces head on in our passage. But I, I want to make clear that traditions and traditionalism are not bad. In fact, there's a sense in which Christianity has come down to us because of tradition. Okay, so there's a sense in which there's a necessity of tradition. In fact, you can write these two two verses down in 2 Thessalonians. It's 2 Thessalonians 2.15 and 2 Thessalonians 3.6. But, but listen to what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. He says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And so Paul seems to, in his mind, understand there's, there's traditions that have been passed down from the apostles to, to the Christians, to the early Christians, either by word of mouth, so this oral tradition, or what's been written in our letters. Or at, later in, in chapter 3 of Second Thessalonians, he says, Don't, he says, keep away from the brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So in Paul's mind, there's this tradition that, that, that sets kind of this boundary for these are how Christians live, and it's within this tradition that's passed down from generation to generation. So in one sense, we have no Christianity without tradition. Okay, so, so we have to have balance. It, it's, it's often popular now that when we hear tradition or traditionalism, we think of old and dead, which sometimes that's true, but not always. In fact, one, one church, early church historian um, named Yarslav Pelikan, he says that tradition, here's how he defines it, tradition is the living faith of the dead. So, so think about that, the living faith of the dead that's been passed down. So it's a, it's a living and active thing that has come from generation to generation. And then th- this, this I want to I give this one last analogy that I came across that I think, I think will help us understand. So, so from the youngest to the oldest, I think this will help us. This author writes, he says, one may compare tradition to the shell of the blue crab. Okay, so he says, one may compare tradition to the shell of the blue crab. To live and grow, the blue crab must shed its shell from time to time. 
until it creates a new shell. The crab is extremely vulnerable. But if the shell becomes so strong and rigid that the crab cannot escape, well, that is the shell in which it dies. Losing traditions that make one feel safe and comfortable can cause great anxiety. But hanging on to traditions so that one becomes hard-shelled is fatal. And so as we read, as we look at our passage this morning, I'm asking God to make us a church, to make us a people who are not afraid of the anxiety that shedding a shell can bring. Okay, that, that we're not a people who are headed towards hard-shelled death. Okay, I don't want us to be that, that type of church. But I also am asking that God would make us a people who cherish and celebrate tradition, who, who relish in the traditions that have been handed down from ages to ages. And so what I'm saying is I want us to be a unified cast of blue-shelled crabs. That's what I want us to be, holding fast to the living faith of the dead while moving past the dead faith of the living. Okay, so that's what I want us to be. I want us to strike a balance as we think about traditions and traditionalism. And so let's, I think that's enough introduction. Let's, let's read our passage and, and see what Jesus has to say about the, the traditionalism specific to the scribes and Pharisees. So I'm going to read Mark, verses 1 through 23 of Mark chapter 7. So you can follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1 of Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his, that's Jesus' disciples, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Verse 3, here's a parenthesis. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, they do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, end of parentheses. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but rather they eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus continues, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Parentheses, Thus he declared, All foods clean. Verse 20, And Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And that's where we stop. That's where our passage ends there in verse 23. 
Now, like I said, I, I, we see in this passage, we see the traditions of the Pharisees, the, the traditionalism of the scribes. And, and in this traditionalism, we see three aspects or, or three characteristics of this traditionalism that Jesus condemns, that he goes head on in attacking. And so the three points um, are, are, are the characteristics of the traditionalism that, that Jesus opposes or that he condemns. And so we're going to work through verses 1 through 8. We're going to see that a traditionalism that Jesus condemns is a traditionalism that fosters pride, a traditionalism that, that, that fosters pride and hypocrisy. And then verses 9 through 13, a traditionalism that rejects the Word of God. And then lastly, in verses 14 through 23, we're going to see a, a traditionalism that distorts the gospel itself. Okay, so let's start with, with verses 1 through 8. First, a, a traditionalism that fosters pride. And so this whole section, this, this whole dialogue is, is going to center around a discussion and, and even a debate that involves ritual purity. And, and as this debate starts, we, we recognize that, that the Pharisees, that the scribes, that, that they're opponents of Jesus. Last time we saw them in chapter 3 of Mark, they wanted to... They, they wanted to destroy him, their, their opponents. And so what's happened is, is they're spying out on Jesus. So we have some Pharisees that are there, and then some, some scribes from Jerusalem have come, and, and presumably they've come to, to spy on Jesus, to, to put an end to this quelling of, uh, to, to, they want to quell the growing popularity of Jesus. And so what they want to do is they want to say, okay, here's the tradition, here, here's the, the commands of God, the traditions that, that the God's people hold, and you, teacher, are, are contradicting them. So your followers need to dis, disband because they're not following God, but they're following you who is leading them away from God. So that, that's their goal. They, they, want to, they want to catch him. And that's what they do. You see there in verse 1, they observe that his disciples, they're eating with unwashed hands, or as they would say, defiled hands, dirty hands. And so Mark goes out of his way there in verses 3 and 4 to explain exactly what's going on. Okay, so that, that's why he gives all, all the details about, about what these Pharisees, what the Jews do. Um, now, now, let me just make a point here. I remember, you know, I, I can imagine if, I, if I'm a younger person here, I could think, well, well, this is why my parents want me to wash hands, right? They're wanting me to be Pharisees. Mom, I'm not washing my hands before dinner, right? That, that's what Pharisees do, right? This, I just want to make clear, this is this is not simply a sanitary washing that's going on here. Okay, this is not just, okay, germs are what we're afraid of, so we're going to wash our hands. That, that's not what, what's going on here. This hand washing is, is much more involved. This has to do with a, a ritual purity. And so this hand washing is actually a religious activity that has to do with one's ability or even privilege of, of partaking in fellowship with God, with, with religious activity. So, so if they were defiled, they, they couldn't partake in the religious life. They couldn't go to the temple. They, they couldn't perform these, these duties that they believed God had called them to. And so what they did is they, they wanted to be extra clean, make sure that they were not at all defiled. They, they wanted to be pure. And so they were obsessed with washing and cleansing. As, as Mark uh, notes, that their hands themselves, their cups, their pots, and even the, the couches or the chairs that they ate on. They cleaned everything, and it, it, they weren't doing that because they were afraid of germs. They did it because they were afraid of becoming defiled. They were afraid of be, be, being unworthy or, or impure, and, and they knew God's people required purity. Now, let me just, there are many health benefits to cleanliness, okay? So, boys and girls, you need to wash your hands and take showers. Maybe some of you older people, you need to hear that also, okay? There are many health benefits, but that's not the point here. And I think we should be careful and, and, and be more gracious with the Pharisees and the scribes because it's easy to read about them. We, we know their story, and so we can read about them and, and say, what, what, a, what a bad group. 
What, what hypocrites, what, what, what poor examples. And most of the time it's warranted, okay? So, so Jesus has the harshest words reserved for them, but we can't forget that they're trying to observe the law of God. That, that's their motivation. They want to honor God. They're, they're zealous for keeping the law. They're, they're zealous for the tra- traditions. They have God-honoring intentions. In fact, someone has, I don't remember where this came from, I've heard it a number of times, but an illustration of, of a, that, that kind of describes what the Pharisees did is, is say you have, you have the law of God that, say this is right in the middle of the yard, it's this law, and the Pharisees know we've we got to keep the law, we can't transgress it. So what they do is they build a fence around it. Okay, so they, they put these laws into place to, to prevent them from, from getting to transgressing the laws. Then they put another fence around, and another fence around, and another fence around, and all of it so that they won't transgress the, the law. And so, they, so their, their purpose is law after law after law, right? It becomes burdensome, but their intention is to prevent, to guard the keeping of the law. And so that's what they're doing. And so their purpose is to keep men from transgressing God's commands, but, but what we'll see is that their fences actually keep others from keeping God's commands. And so they, they, they go against the exact purpose that they were intended to do. And so the charge that's repeated several times is, is you're keeping the traditions instead of God's commands. You're so caught up with these fences that you're forgetting what they're guarding. And so notice in verse 5, getting back to our passage, they ask Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to tradition, but rather they eat with defiled hands? And so these, these, these Pharisees, these scribes, in their minds, the traditions of the elders are in line with the commands of God. So basically they're asking Jesus, why, why are your disciples disobeying God? Don't you know that God's people are to avoid defilement? Jesus, don't your disciples know that? Don't you know your disciples, they're, they're walking around defiled and unclean like a bunch of Gentiles? Why, why are they doing that? Why don't you make them keep the law? You call yourself a prophet of God. Well, why don't you teach this basic thing to them, Jesus? And so this question that they ask in, in an attempt to, to trap him or, or to, to catch him, it actually gives Jesus an opportunity to, to get to a root of an issue in, in them. Their question gives Jesus a chance to get underneath the hand-washing issue to a, to a much deeper issue, namely the commands of God. So there, notice in verse 6, he says to them in response, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written? And then he quotes a, a few verses from Isaiah which says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, now Jesus isn't saying that when Isaiah wrote that, that he was talking about you guys. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he's simply saying, those people that Isaiah was talking about, you guys know those people that Isaiah was talking about? The things that he said about them describe exactly what you're doing. You honor God with your lips, but your heart is far from him. On the outside, everything looks good. You do the right things. But inside, the things that can't be seen in your heart, it's, it's far from God, which, as Jesus continues, which means that all of your worship, all the things that you're actually doing, they're in vain because they're not leading you to actually worship me. Instead, you're worshiping the men who gave you the commands. You're, you're worshiping yourselves. And so it's all vain. You're, you're not accomplishing what you're setting out to do. You're hypocrites. You pretend to worship God, but, but you're not. You say one thing, but you do another. You're, you're pretenders. And then the serious charge in verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now, Jesus is in verses 9 through 13. He's going to elaborate that point. He's going to give a specific example. But let me mention just one, one point of application here before we move to the second point. And that, that simply, in these first verses, we already see a dangerous effect of, of this traditionalism that, that Jesus rejects. Because these, these men, they're holding to traditions in men, in men 
of men in such a way, with such zeal, that they actually they despise or they hate others who are not doing the same. So their holding of tradition promoted a, a self-righteousness that caused them to despise those who weren't like them. And so their keeping of the, of the traditions of men led them to forsake the second greatest commandment of God, which is to love others. And so at the outset, it's just good for us to be reminded that, that any discussion of traditions or commands, that, that any discussion regarding Christian living and Christian activity, it must take place under the umbrella of love. How easy it is for us to forget that the gospel message is not God saves us because we're righteous. That's not the good news. The gospel doesn't even say that God, God, that God saves us because we would continue to be righteous. That God saves us while we were sinners, while we were still enemies. The gospel message is that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. In other words, we didn't and we don't deserve it. That, that's the gospel message. That's the good news. The foundation of the gospel and the foundation of every Christian life is, is humility. There's no room for pride in this game. So there should be an evangelical humility that characterizes everything about us. An evangelical humility that characterizes every aspect of our lives. And so we are called to labor to ensure that, that our holding to any Christian traditions does not lead us away from loving others. Love must characterize everything that we do. And so, so I, I hesitated. I, actually, I hadn't written this, but I thought this morning, I thought, well, I'm going to add this. So I think you guys like me, so I, I, can, I can push back now. But a, a really specific way that I think this would work itself out is the issue of hats in the sanctuary. Okay, so let me tell you, the issue of hats in the sanctuary, in, in that discussion, the primary issue isn't the hat. Okay, it's not about the hat, primarily. It's about the person, either who's wearing the hat that I don't want wearing the hat, or it's about me wearing the hat, and it's about the person who doesn't want me wearing the hat. And so any discussion, so any, any way that we're going to move forward in, regarding an issue of a hat in the sanctuary it has to be done in the heart of love towards the other. So, so yeah, let's talk about it. Let's discuss it, but let's do so in love, caring about the person more than what's on their head or what's, what they're saying about what's on my head, right? Because when we refuse to love, then we're, we're missing the point. And so I'm not saying, I'm not giving my, my, my verdict on it. I'm just saying we have to move forward with that issue and any other that comes up with love because we are, we're united as one body. And they will know us not by how we, what we look like when we worship or what, what events we do, but, but by our love, by the way we relate to one another. And so let us strive to love one another as we, as we work through any issues of tradition or traditionalism that comes up. Let's continue. Looking secondly at, at the traditionalism that, that rejects or, or makes void the Word of God. So, so Jesus, verses 9 through 13, gives a specific example so he continues making his point that they've forsaken the commandment of God in order to keep their man-made tradition. So, so look there in verse 9. Notice, notice the example that he gives. He says, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. Moses also said, Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So these are clear commands of Moses. Verse 11, But you say, Here's Jesus saying, This is what Moses says, But you say, If a man tells his father and mother... 
whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And so the logic here, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Here's a clear command. In fact, one of the Ten Commandments. What, what commandment is it to love your father and mother? Who knows? Number five, love your father and mother. A clear commandment. And one of the ways to, to honor your father and mother is, is to provide for them, to take care of them. I mean, that's good. That, that's what we should do. I mean, I, I thought about Rosemary Thurston and Pam Ward, who are committed to caring for their mothers in really practical ways. Right? This is good thing, a good thing for children to do, especially as their parents age. But the Pharisees, in their traditions, had adopted a command that, that whatever anyone would give to their parents, and in this case specifically money, the Pharisees said, no, no, you can't give that to your parents. In fact, you have to give it to God. You have to give it to the work of God, to, to the temple, so that God's work would be supported. So don't give it to your parents. Give it to God. And so in their attempt to support the work of God, they're actually disobeying a clear command of God to love and honor their parents. They had rejected the word of God in order to follow this tradition. And, and notice that in the verse 13, Jesus says, and many such things you do. So it's not just an, an isolated event. He's not just saying, oh, this is, this is what you got to fix. He's saying, this is a pattern that represents all that you do. There, there's many commands that, that the same pattern is at work. And so it's as if obeying God was going one direction, and obeying the traditions of men was going a completely opposite direction. And so they thought they were going this way, but in fact, they were going the total opposite direction. Their compass was as backwards as it could have possibly been. And Jesus was drawing attention to that. He was confronting them on their, for their own good. He wants them to see, listen, don't you see what you're doing? They were going the wrong way. They're missing the point entirely. And so before we move to the last section, let me just make a, a, a second point of application from, from these verses, and that's simply that the Word of God must always set the standard. Right? There, there's got to be a standard that, that, that judges all other standards, and that standard is the Word of God, the commandment of God. That, that has to be the standard setter. The Scriptures are the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, all human creeds, all religious opinions should be tried. There's one standard that everything else is subject to, and that is the commands of God, the Scriptures. Human tradition or opinion must not ever hold the position of authority over and above the Scriptures. That's what happened. So they neglected the scriptures for the sacred tradition. We must not let that happen. When, when that happens here, we're not a church anymore. We must hold fast to the word of God. When the scriptures are seen as, as the God-given standard that they are in the life of the church or in the life of, of, of the Christian, man-made traditions that contradict the scriptures are, clean, are seen clearly as what they are. Right? When, you, when you know the scriptures, these man-made traditions, you can say, no, no, no. I'm not going to give the money that I will give to my parents to the church because I'm called by God to support my parents. So when you know the Scriptures, when you're holding fast to the Scriptures, you can see these traditions and, and reject them on the authority of the Scriptures. But when Scriptures do not have a place, when the Scriptures do not have the place, both in the church and the Christian, they become vulnerable to the dangers of traditionalism, as these Pharisees and scribes show. Well, as, we, as we move forward, Past verse 13, we get to verse 14, a shift has taken place. And so Jesus has, has addressed the Pharisees, but, but he's never really uh, answered the question about eating with unclean hands. Okay, so, so all that Jesus has done so far, he's, a, he's attacked 
the, the source of authority for the Pharisees, the traditions of the elders. So he's attacked that, saying that, that's not what should be guiding you. Now, however, in verses 14 through 23, Jesus turns to the crowd and, and those who are listening, his disciples, and he addresses um, the, the initial question that was asked. So he gets the reality behind defilement. So look there in verses 14 through 24. So verse 14, Jesus called all the people to himself. And after he tells them to listen and understand, he explains. So he's getting to the defilement question. He says there's nothing outside a person that but going into him can defile him. Okay, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And so Jesus, that, that's his statement. That's going to that's gonna, um, be the sum. He's going he's gonna to unpack that for the rest of, of verses 16 through 23. Okay, he's saying nothing outside that going in can defile him, but what comes, comes out from within is what defiles him. So he's going to unpack that. Now, just, I just want to make a, a, a short point here. I'm not going to go into detail, but what Jesus isn't doing is eliminating these categories of clean and unclean. Because the law had, had clearly said there are clean and there's unclean, right? So, so God had established that through Moses. So, so what Jesus isn't saying at these, is that these Old Testament laws on purity are no longer valid. Okay? He's not just abrogating them, saying that you don't need them anymore, or, or that, that they, weren't, they weren't there intentionally. Rather, he's attacking the delusion that sinful men can attain to true purity before God through a scriptural scrupulous observant of cultic purity, which is powerless to cleanse the defilement of the heart. Simply put, Jesus is saying the law can't make you clean. The law can't do it. Keeping laws and traditions can't clean your heart. The issue isn't keeping the dirty from going in. The issue is how to address the dirty that's already in there, namely the human heart. And so these traditions are are distorting the gospel by making it seem like we don't really have a heart problem. We just have an external, uh, an actions problem. So as long as we get that covered, we're good. And that distorts the gospel, as we'll see in a minute. And so after this, this hard teaching, Mark doesn't record how, how the people respond. We're only left to guess. But what Mark does do is record the follow-up conversation between Jesus and his disciples. So we see, again, the disciples have this inside. They're insiders. So they get this explanation of, of here's what I meant. Here, here's the teaching of the parable. And so in verse 17, they, they enter into the house, and, and the people leave. So it's just Jesus and his disciples, and they ask him about the teaching. What in the world are you talking about, Jesus? We have no clue. Those people, they were scratching their head, and, and we had no idea what to tell them. So what, what in the world were you talking about? And so verse 18, Jesus responds, somewhat astounded by, by this ignorance. Then are you also without understanding? You don't get it either? Which by this point into Mark's gospel, we're not surprised Right? We're not surprised that, that these disciples are persistently dull in their spiritual understanding and, and unable, unable to discern the teaching. And so, so what we see again and again is that Jesus patiently bears with their lack of understanding and, and patiently explains to them the teaching. And, and his basic message, that he tells them, it's not what goes in by way of the hands, but what comes out from the heart, that defilement is, is defined. It's not what goes in by way of the hands, but what comes out of the heart. That's how, that's how you think about it. That's how you identify defilement or impurity. And so, verse 19, Jesus gives the reason that, what, that what's going on, gives the reason that what goes in isn't the issue. And he says, food never touches the heart. And it's not like the physical heart, but, but the, inner, the inner life of a person, the soul of the person. When you eat food, it, it doesn't address the heart. That's what he says. When you eat food, it doesn't go into the heart. It enter, enters the mouth, goes down the throat, into the stomach, and then it's expelled. It's expelled. And that, that's, that's what food does. It goes in and it comes out. And so the issue isn't the food. 
If you notice, Mark adds a very important editorial comment at the end of verse 19, thus he declared all foods clean. And so what Mark is doing is for the benefit of his readers in the early church that would, that would get his letter, is, is he's making clear that, that this new covenant, that this new church that's forming, that's, that's built on the teaching of Jesus, this, this kingdom of God purity, it, it's not about eating foods that are clean or unclean. That's, that's why Mark adds that there. So the church that's reading this can say, oh, okay, so I know we're confused about if, if we're supposed to eat this food or this food. He's saying, Jesus has declared all foods clean. And so, so this would be a huge problem in the early church if you just read the letter of Acts or the book of Acts, especially as it relates to Jews and Gentiles fellowshipping together. In the end of the book of Romans, it's the same thing. And so here, Mark is justifying the church's interpretation of Old Testament dietary laws. He's saying, oh, we, don't, we don't have to abide by them anymore because Jesus has declared all, all foods clean. So namely, these Old Testament laws that, that govern God's people, Jesus has, has fulfilled them, and, and they no longer are binding on us. So we can eat whatever we want. Now, Paul would make some, some statements about conscious issues, okay, but, but basically Mark is saying all foods are clean. Same lesson, if you remember Peter, with the sheet coming down before he goes to Cornelius' house. That's the same lesson that Peter had to learn. And so having established that, that the food going into the person isn't the issue, Jesus continues there in verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And so it's, it's, as, it's as if he says, he declares all foods clean, but de- so everything that goes in is clean. Now he also switches and says everything that comes out is unclean. So that's where the uncleanliness comes from what's inside. He says what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man come. And now listen to this list. Evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. So it's not about the food going in. It's about what's coming out of the heart. And so this explanation places the question of defilement and purity on a fundamentally different plane than, than what the Pharisees and scribes are talking about. Right? It's a, it's a category shift. Instead of creating categories of clean and unclean that are easily regulated... Okay, like don't eat, don't touch, things that you can, you can command or control through these external commands and traditions. Jesus heightens the requirements, and actually he raises the bar, just like what he does in, in the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, you've heard it said, but I say. So he's raising the bar. So Jesus here is destroying any and every self-righteous thought that would suppose that, that this purity, this cleansing was achievable through law-keeping. You clean everything good. You keep all the rules Good. Everyone knows you as, as the righteous one, as the churchgoer, good. Your heart is still evil. You still have a purity issue. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. Yeah, you can keep all the laws. That's great, but it's not law-keeping that, that keeps you pure. You've got to go deeper than just keeping these laws. Now remember, that this whole purity cleansing discussion, it's not merely some, some sanitation discussion. The whole issue involved a relationship with God, and so ritual purity was a, was a prerequisite for, for fellowship with God. Who, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Only, only those with a pure, pure heart and clean hands. Remember the psalmist said. So there's this, this principle that, that's been established that only the pure can approach God. And so when Jesus declares that defilement comes from inside, he issues a verdict that affects everyone. Not just the Pharisees, it affects the disciples. It affects the people listening. I mean, evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all of these things come from within. Right? You think, you think you're doing well on the list? 
I mean, just, just listen to them. There, there's one I, I can guarantee that affects you. Probably more. They all affect me. Right? There is no heart in which this radical evil has failed to take root. That's true of every person sitting here. And this is something we must hear. The human heart is naturally wicked. I mean, that's the point here. All of these things, they're, they're not just things people do. Right? They, have a, they have a starting point in the heart of man. I came across this quote by, by a man who wrote in around the 1900s. Um, but just listen. He wrote this a long time ago, but, but just listen to this. He says, Our original sinfulness and natural inclination to evil are seldom sufficiently considered. The wickedness of men is often attributed to bad examples, bad company, peculiar temptations, or the snares of the devil. It seems forgotten that every man carries within him a fountain of wickedness. We need no bad company to teach us and no devil to tempt us in order to run into sin. We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. That's the declaration that Jesus makes concerning the human heart, and it's every human heart. It's not unique to the Pharisees. It's, it's, it's me, and it's you, and it's his disciples. And so we have, we have evil hearts, and, and that's where Mark leaves us. Right? That's where we're going to stop our passage this morning. He leaves us with this less than flattering picture of the human heart, a less than flattering picture of ourselves. But that's, not where, that's not where we're going to leave off this morning. Okay, that's where Mark leaves us, but that's not where we're going to leave off. Because this grim verdict, it paves the way for hope. The evil of the human heart sets the stage for the sin-forgiving, heart-cleansing, life-transforming good news of the gospel. The evil human heart is no match for the power of God on display in the gospel. And so here's, here's our closing application. Christians must be gospel people. We must be gospel people, people who love the gospel, people who know the gospel, people who proclaim the gospel. The way that this passage closes points us to the necessity of a gospel, a dark, evil human heart requires a salvation that's outside of us. We must be gospel people because it reminds us of the nature of the problem. Right? That's the problem, the evil human heart. The, the gospel is good news of salvation. The gospel doesn't just give a nudge and say, well, just try a little harder. You can do it. Right? That's no gospel. The gospel gives us a resurrection and a, and a new heart and a new life. How easy, it is us to, how easy it is for us to think that all we have to do is just try harder. How easy it is for us to gauge our relationship with God on, on our own performance, on our, on our law-keeping, our external piety, church attendance, prayer reading, gospel sharing. The gospel tells us that our good deeds are as filthy rags. They're useless in bringing us near to God. As Christians, we must never forget the good news of the gospel that God saves us apart from our works and he keeps us apart from our works. And so if you're here, let me just say, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you, you should hear the teaching of Jesus in this passage today. You are, you are in need of more than, than a change in actions. Okay, you're in need of more than, than simply a self-help book or teaching. You are in need, in desperate need, of a renewed and a cleansed human heart. If you're not a Christian, that's what you need. And God offers that to you through the gospel. 
your heart, if you're not a Christian, if you're a Christian too, but we'll get to you in a minute. If you're not a Christian, this, this, this is the, this is the dis, uh, description of your, your heart. Here's what's, here's what's in your heart growing and, and, and coming out. Evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Th- those are what are growing in your heart. And, and all of those things produce alienation. All of those things estrange you from the God who created you and loves you. They push you apart from Him. And apart from His heart-changing work that is done by Him through the gospel, you will perish in those things, apart from God, separated forever. But there's good news for you this morning. There is a solution to the evil human heart. And so if you're not a Christian, through faith and repentance, right, there's a solution for you. So when you turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ, God gives you a new heart. That's what we read about in, in Jeremiah 31. That's the new covenant promise. I'm going to put a new heart in my people, and they're all going to know me. I'm going to keep them. They're going to keep my laws. I'm going to cause them to walk in my statutes. So God gives you a new heart. He replaces our sinful heart and gives us a new heart that helps us to love Him and to love others. And thus we're cleansed from the inside out. It doesn't make us perfect, but it's a process that that begins when when we repent and trust in Christ. We have a new heart, and then our desires change. And so the, the gospel gives us not only the, 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 the problem, but also the solution. And so as Christians, right, that we, we, it's easy for us to think the solution is for non-Christians. But if you're a Christian, the gospel gives you hope and me hope. It sustains our hope. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, okay, I have a new heart. I've done that. I've repented and I believe, but I still have evil coming from my heart. I still struggle with evil thoughts, with pride, with, with all that list. I, I'm still struggling. Does that mean I don't have a new heart? Do I need to repent and believe again? Let me encourage you, Christian. The solution, the hope, is found in the good news of the gospel. Your hope is found in the gospel. God saves you. Your works don't save you. Your good works don't don't keep you. God's mercy keeps you, and He's committed to you in this new covenant, which has been sealed by His Spirit. Did you know that God has made you clean? You can't make yourself dirty. Right? Jesus, the blood of Christ, has cleansed you. So these evil thoughts, they don't characterize you. They don't, they don't declare you unclean. You are clean and accepted through the death of Christ. And so we have hope. He's committed to us. He's given us his spirit. He's at work in you. So don't be discouraged. God is for you. He's given you his spirit. You're in process. We all are in process. And as long as we're in process, we're dependent upon him. And so to be marked by love and humility, recognizing that the grace of God is the only thing that makes us different. And so Christian, in the midst of your discouragement, if you're discouraged at your lack of, of purity, of, of cleanliness, if, you, if, if your struggle with sin is weighing you down, be encouraged by the gospel this morning. That, that's, that's the best thing that I can give you. God has made you clean, and he is with you and will, will enable you to grow from one degree to another until you are formed in the perfect image of Christ. And that process won't be clean complete until we see him in glory. Let's pray.